This is what we call a bull stampede or a bullish stampede. So you kind of think about a stampede of bulls, right? They're all just running in one direction. That's what's going on right now. We've got this bullish stampede going on, which means you have minimal drawdowns and, and lots of updates. So it's just the market just kind of grinds higher and it just kind of keeps moving higher. And investors are going, I don't understand what's going on here. This market's just never going to go down again. But that's that bullish stampede. Then conversely, what will ultimately happen is at some point we'll get a bear stampede. And then this is where investors will go, I just don't understand why this market won't stop going down. And you know, we go through these from time to time. Nonetheless, your point, we are very overbought here. Um, and, and that's going to limit upside. Doesn't mean markets can't go up a little bit further from here. They certainly can. But again, just be aware that you know we're pretty stretched. Same thing. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart, welcoming you back here at the end of another week for a weekly market recap featuring my good and vertical friend, Lance <laughs> Roberts. Lance, that was vertical with a D. Uh, I'm going to assume, perhaps you and not everybody watching doesn't necessarily, not everybody knows what that word means. It okay. means truthful, like veritas. So anyways, uh, you're a guy who uh, who's a straight shooter, doesn't mince words. I thought vertical was pretty appropriate for you this week. Uh, see, I thought you meant vertical with a V because uh, after getting ready for this conference this weekend, I've been working late. So it's surprising <laughs> I'm vertical today. <laughs> yeah, I think next week you're going to be my horizontal friend, Lance Roberts. Cor correct. That, that will <laughs> absolutely be the case. But yeah, and speaking of which, yeah. as we're talking here, uh, on this video, and folks are watching it probably on, on Saturday morning, we are at your event in Houston. Uh, that is correct. Um, so yeah, very excited today to you know be talking to a, a fairly large group of people and just you know talking about the economy, the outlook. Uh, Greg Valliere today, who is a political commentator, talking about the presidential election cycle, what to expect from this election. So you know and how it's going to affect the market. So yeah, very excited about it. It's going to be a very interesting day. Okay, so uh, on the day you and I are talking, Lance, we've had um, five consecutive all-time highs uh, in the S&P. Uh, TBD if Friday is going to close uh, at, at another all-time high or not. Um, real quick, just uh, want to give a quick preview for something I'll talk about at the end of this discussion. Um, so we're at your conference right now as folks are watching this. Uh, I have not only locked in the date for my conference, but now tickets are on sale for it at the early bird price. Uh, so I'm going to give everybody all that information at the end of this video. Um, and also, uh, just very happy to announce, as we talked about last week, that I had passed my securities exam. Uh, I am now able to officially start referring people to our endorsed financial advisors like your firm, Lance. And so thoughtfulmoney.com, folks, I'll give you all the details on that at the end of this video. But wanted to give a little advanced celebration here. It's so nice to have that up and running again. Um, all right, Lance. Well, like I said, five consecutive all-time highs in the S&P here. Uh, tell us what's going on. Maybe we want to pull up the S&P chart that we normally view each week. Um, yeah. My key question for you is, are we are we entering into overbought territory here with these consecutive all-time highs, or are we still sort of staying in that band? No, no, no. We we are we are definitely not. Let me get to uh, share screen here. Um, yeah, no, definitely not in that band anymore. Uh, we were in this band uh, back in mid-December and early January, broke out of that decisively. And early January, we've been kind of ratcheting up ever since then. Uh, we're back on a MACD buy signal. Um, and, you know, so there's a couple of interesting things that are going on. 
So first of all, you know, this breakout to new highs and we consolidated for a very long period. And, you know, from that consolidation process, you would expect that the market's going to move up or down uh, and break out of that channel. And so we broke out to the upside. So that's good news. Uh, the bulls remain very intact. Um, however, we are back to overbought conditions, but we're also on a MACD. If you look at the top part of this chart, we're back onto a MACD buy signal. So this buy signal, this little highlighted circle is back intact. Now, just because we're on a buy signal doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to take off running to the races, you know, higher. We're going to go up 10% from here or whatever. I mean, anything's certainly possible, but, um, Kind of like, as is always the case, when these indicators are flipping back and forth at a fairly high level, price advances continue to be contained somewhat. So, again, if we look back, you know, to June of last year as a good example of this, we were at a fairly high level on the MACD like we are now. So very similar type of, type of setup. Triggered a sell signal. The market kind of flopped around for about a month or so. Didn't, you know, kind of grinded higher, but, you know, ultimately really didn't go anywhere. Flip back to a MACD buy signal in about mid-July, flip back to that buy signal, about the same level that we're at now, and the market rallied through the end of the month, and then that was it, and then we had that 10% correction. So it's not, un it's not unusual for the market to be doing here what it's doing, very similar to what we saw <clears throat> since November, uh, November, December, halfway through January now has been a very strong advance. This is what we call a bull stampede or a bullish stampede. So you kind of think about a stampede of bulls, right? They're all just running in one direction. That's what's going on right now. We've got this bullish stampede going on, which means you have minimal drawdowns and, and lots of updates. So just the market just kind of grinds higher and it just kind of keeps moving higher. And investors are going, I don't understand what's going on here. This market's just never going to go down again. But that's that bullish stampede. Then conversely, what will ultimately happen is at some point we'll get a bear stampede. And then this is where investors will go, I just don't understand why this market won't stop going down. And, you know, we go through these from time to time. Um, normally, these stampedes last 15 to 20 trading days, but they, they do occasionally last longer. We've had two very long advances uh, just since last year, uh, March, April, May, June, of uh, July of last year, and now November, December, January of this year. These are very long kind of advances for these bullish stampedes. Um, but consequently, you're eventually going to get this bearish stampede that investors are going to start talking about, oh, the bear market's back. Um, this market's never going to stop going down anymore. It's, you know, this is, it's all over. And, and, you know, this is just how market psychology works. And this is why it's really important not to get trapped up into these narratives about, you know, markets, you know, nothing's going to bring this market down. It's just going to go up forever. You're eventually going to get selling pressure because simply you get an imbalance of buyers and sellers. And at some point, all the people that will have wanted to buy stocks will have bought them. And those that have sold they they've been selling all the way and they're they're basically out of stuff to sell for the most part and then you get this reversion because now the buyers will want to start selling and the sellers will start buying again so that's just how markets work over time understand the dynamics certainly helps a lot uh to kind of navigate the psychological side of this but nonetheless your point we are very overbought here um and and that's going to limit upside doesn't mean markets can't go up a little bit further from here they certainly can but again, just be aware that you know we're pretty stretched. Same thing uh, holds true if we look at the volatility index 
uh, versus the S&P 500. Let me change this to a line so it's a little bit easier to see. Uh, well, daily volatility messes that up. So here, let's let's just look at this. So, so if you take a look at the volatility index, we're pigging down. I mean, we're at basically about 13 on the VIX, very, very low levels. And normally when markets are screeching higher, like they're doing now, and you have very low volatility, this is a point in time where, you know, nobody's convinced the market's going to come down again. So why buy puts? Um, that typically tends to be kind of a, 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 an inflection point to where you start getting some type of correction in the markets. Again, doesn't mean the market's going to crash. Doesn't mean anything like that. It just means you're going to get a pullback in the markets to give you a better opportunity to add some exposure to portfolios. And so again, just have to kind of navigate that for, for what it is and, and you know just understand this. Now, uh, one last chart here, then I'll throw it back to you. Um, yeah. you hey, real quick, here. before you, before you, yeah, you just oh, left no, that chart. Right. But, um, so that was a two-year chart in volatility you had there? Yeah, that was about two years. Um, let's put that back up. I mean, I guess we're back up in the 13s here. We were down in the 12s not that long ago. But but I just want to note here that that volatility is more compressed or subdued than it has been in at least two years here, right? Yeah, no, this is we're we're plumbing kind of all-time lows for volatility. I mean, you know, normally we used to bottom around 15. That was a, a very low level of volatility. Now we're, you know, we're doing 12 to 13. So yeah, we're we've really, really ever since the October 2022 bottom, where we were talking about then, of course, you'll remember back then, October of 22, everybody's like, it's a recession's here and right. the housing market's gonna crash. We're de-dollarizing, uh, you know, rates are gonna go to the moon. And everything was so negative. We said, hey, this is a this is a really great setup for the markets because you have such negative sentiment that's going to drive a bullish turn to the markets. And we wrote a couple articles about this and, and other things. Of course, everybody believed FANG stocks were dead at that point as well. Then, of course, since then, we've had this massive you know, rally. A lot of it's driven by the FANG stocks in particular. And that's just been compressing that volatility ever since. So we've just compressed volatility to basically nothing at this point. And, you know, which is, again, like I said, you know, that's just a really good, when you have that kind of compressed volatility, it's like a spring. It wants volatility wants to go higher. It's just a function of what triggers it. Um, all right, Lance. Well, look. Um, you know, I think one of the questions that's increasingly getting asked now is, you know, are is there potential for a melt up here? Right. Um, you know, we've got this bullish stampede. Um, we've got companies coming out of their uh, their buyback window. Um, uh, you know, we've got. Uh, good macro news we'll, we'll we'll talk in a moment about uh you know the the five sigma beat on the gdp uh number for q4 um and 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 tied to that is this narrative which i know you've got something to say on because you just wrote a piece about it huge surprise yeah. um which is that there's all this money on the sidelines right all this this these trillions that have moved their way into money market funds and and you know now that there's a party going on in stocks and that the fed might be cutting rates all that cash is going to slosh into the stock market and start driving stocks higher. So what do you, what's your thought here on the sort of um, market melt-up? I'm not saying crack-up boom, because that's a different phenomenon. And there are other people beginning to talk about that too. But but let's stick with the melt-up potential here. What do you think? Well, no, I mean, look, look, look markets are, you know, doing exactly what you would expect them to do. And uh, again, you know, we had spent two years going nowhere. Um, so theoretically, we... we 
you know, January 22 to January 24, the market's return was zero. So that's, you know, we just spent last year getting back to even. So in a market melt up, this is where you're just, you know, gyrating higher, absolutely nothing, you know, out there is, is able to stop the market. It certainly seems that way right now, but look, Economic growth is good. Uh, we just saw a PCE come in today with personal spending at 0.7. Uh, expectations were 0.4. Personal incomes were, you know, in line with uh, at 0.3. Uh, GDP growth at 3.3%. There's some some not you know there's some things going on with GDP numbers, but again, like you said, GDP is fine. Unemployment's low. Um, unemployment rate is low. You know, there's just you know there's really nothing here to you know, concern the, the bull, so to speak, in terms of the market. And, and you know, we're not making 1% advances every day. The market's grinding higher, but we just spent a month and a half consolidating range. And so technically, the markets are behaving actually very normally. I mean, yeah, there's no volatility right now. Um, markets aren't jumping up and down. We're not having, you know, 2% up days and 2% down days, that type of thing. But there's nothing here that really suggests you're having a big melt up in the market. Now, there's some stocks that we can certainly talk about. NVIDIA, AMD, some of the, you know, the AI stocks, they, they have certainly gone parabolic here uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks. In particular, uh, NVIDIA, as an example, is up 20% this year. And we added NVIDIA back, <clears throat> I think, in November of last year. And, you know, it's up 20% in two weeks. So, you know, that's the type of thing you don't like to see as an investor because these very outsized gains are going to have to give up here a bit. You know, Eli Lilly, which we've added to the portfolio, that's doing very well. Uh, AMD, you know, we since we bought AMD in 20, uh, late 23, it's up like 74%. So, you know, those type of stocks are just a little bit, you know, well ahead of themselves. So we're going to, you know, we, we took some profits in AMD on, on uh, Friday, uh, yeah, on Friday, Thursday. Um, and again, you know, when that stock pulls back, we'll rebalance the portfolio, buy some shares back because the thesis behind those stocks is still very strong. But, you know, the overall market, there's there's a lot of weakness. If you, you know, if we were looking at this market and saying, man, just everything is going up, it's not really the case. The, the market is going up because of a really a handful of stocks. We're right. And this is something that we're talking about today right now. This is something we're talking about in my presentation today is we're back to the the MAGA 7, actually, it's, it's, the, it's the Magnificent 6 now. So I was going to mention uh, that, yeah, so go <laughs> on with that, because we've got one that's kind of beginning to fall out of that. Yeah, that camp, so, right? but, but yeah, it, and it's really, when you really nail it, drill down into it, um, it's really two stocks, it's NVIDIA and Meta, or Facebook. So those are really the two driving the market. But again, you know, they make up 35% of the market. And so if you take a look at the advances in, the S&P versus the equal weight index, there's a big disparity again. Um, a vast majority of the market is not going up with the market. Healthcare is lagging this year, underperforming, with the exception of Eli Lilly. Um, you know, utilities, real estate, those stocks, a lot, you remember at the end of last year, we had that very strong advance, really kind of a broad advance. Small caps are doing great, mid caps are doing awesome. They've all kind of given up the ghost uh, this year. We're back to that very narrow advance, which, you know, certainly, provide some concern about that group of stocks. But as far as the market itself being very overbought, it's kind of an illusion of a very small handful of stocks. If you really want to understand what's going on with the market, look at the equal weight index. It's a much better indicator about what the market is doing and whether or not there's an actual meltdown. Okay. And and so we referenced one of the 
companies of the mag seven starting to struggle that's tesla um and uh you know so tesla had been a real bellwether weather for years right it was the unstoppable company right um that's beginning to struggle we're also beginning to see some surprises from some companies that are pretty good bellwethers for for the economy um and you know these are disappointing surprises and their stocks are getting hammered for it um one i'm thinking of right here is intel Right. They just disappointed yesterday. I think right now when we're talking, the stock's down like 10 percent. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, to your point, like it doesn't seem like a broad based rally here necessarily. And it seems like, in fact, some of the some important companies that have done a lot of a lot of water carrying over past years are, are starting to stumble. That's right. And, and again, this is, you know, it, as an example, you know, uh, Intel is just, you know, has you know, bad guidance. They really can't seem to get out of their way in a lot of cases. Um, you know, it's the same thing for Humana. Humana is down like 30% in two days this week on bad guidance about what's happening in the insurance carriers. So, you know, it's it's definitely a stock by stock basis. Um, you can have a portfolio of stocks and do nothing right now <laughs> because you don't own the right stocks. And you may look at your portfolio and say, man, my, my, the market's going up every day. My portfolio is not doing anything. Why? It's because you don't own all the right stocks. You've got to own those seven stocks, unfortunately, to have that kind of, and, and there's other stocks. I shouldn't say it's just seven, but you know, you can take a look at Broadcom. You can take a look at um, uh, Salesforce, CRM. Um, there, there's a variety of other companies in kind of that tech space. They're driving the market, flipping over to healthcare. It's Eli Lilly. Just that stock just has been unstoppable. Um, take a look at um, you know, kind of the defense sector, you know, Raytheon had a bit of problems. They've got themselves kind of straightened out. That stock's been performing a lot better. You know, there's just, you know, and, and kind of going to each little sector, there's, you know, there's one or two stocks that are performing very, very well, but a big swath of them are not. And that's, and that's really the problem with the overall market. All right. Um, you know, I realized we, we, we still have to get to your, um, kind of dismantling of the narrative of cash on the sidelines that's going right. to you know, potentially power melt up. Real quick before we get there, um, uh, we are now beginning to enter earnings season, right? That's why we're getting some of these news events or, or uh, you know, conference calls that are either popping stocks or dropping them. Um, what are earnings telling us right now? Because uh, you wrote a piece earlier this week about the markets and where you said going forward, you know, earnings are key to where this market's going to go. So what are we learning so far? Um, that earnings are actually kind of disappointing. Um, so far, look, we haven't had that many companies report yet. Now, by the by the time that we do this show next week, we'll have a, a, a lot bigger um, a sample of earnings in. And then by the following Friday, we'll have about 80% of the S&P 500 will have reported. So we're going to have a really good indicator about just how good this earnings season was, but so far, very early in the season, uh, very early in the season, we're running about a negative three point four percent disappointment relative to what estimates were. So, uh, you know, stocks aren't, you know, and, and those earnings have been cut. You know, we wrote about the the very drastic cut to Q four Q four earnings estimates um, right at the end, uh, right at the beginning of this year, and uh, those those estimates got cut by eight dollars over two months. Uh, wrapping up the year. So that bar was set really low and we're still missing that bar on a lot of fronts. Guidance has also been weak on a lot of fronts. Now, again, we still haven't gotten to a lot of the bellwethers. We haven't heard from Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, those companies are later. But so far, 
there's not, there's been a couple of companies that have come out that have done really great. They've had big pops and there's been a lot of disappointment. Uh, like I said, Humana is a good example of that. So, you know, you know that, that drags down other stocks and sectors like United Healthcare. So, you know, there's, there's definitely knockoff effects. Okay. And, uh, and how important is it going to be in your estimation, you know, as companies announce, um, they begin to get freed up to start doing buybacks again. Um, how, how big of a factor do you think that's going to be this quarter? Well, you know, it's funny because I said that back in October. I wrote that. I wrote an article back in uh, uh, October. I said, you know, October weakness will lead to an end of the year rally for three reasons. And the first reason was very negative sentiments, which we had. Uh, second reason was that just kind of the end of the year, there's portfolio positioning, that type of thing that happens that tends to drive the markets. And it's, it's you know, basically have a rebalance portfolios. A lot of managers were well underweight. They were lagging performance, had to play catch up. The third reason was buybacks. And we were expecting $5 billion a day in buybacks at that point. And I got a bunch of blowback from people like, buybacks don't drive the market. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, but you, you had a record amount of buybacks in November and December, which just sent this market racing through the room, roof. Um, and then those kind of ended right towards the end of December. Uh, went back into the blackout period. That's where the market's been struggling. Uh, that buyback window has started to open back up. So as companies announce earnings, they can start buying back shares. Uh, even companies like Nokia just announced a $630 million uh, buyback on, on their shares. That's a very small company now. It used to be huge. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, but that window's opening back up. And once we get through Friday after next, that window is going to be pretty much open and the buybacks will begin kind of in earnest again. All right. You know, this is, we've ranted about buybacks so many times, um, but one element about it that just still sticks with me is the decision to do a stock buyback in theory is we, the management have looked across the universe of um, opportunities for where we can invest our excess capital and we have determined of the entire universe that our stock is so undervalued, it's the best purchase to be made right now. And what's so interesting and why that's just such a fallacy is because it always comes back to being, you know, each CFO says, we've looked at the universe and I've just determined it's my stock that's the one that's undervalued, right? They could be buying Apple, they could be buying any other company, right? Right. but for some reason, it's always their one particular stock. And we're gonna put all our 600 and whatever million into that one stock. We're not gonna diversify across. So it's all just shenanigans, right? It's all just that shell game to make your EPS look better. I mean, yes, there's some other reasons if you're retiring, uh, you know, uh, if you're, if you're buying it with debt, let's say that's got a lower uh, interest rate than the dividends that you're replacing, but those right. days are over because debt's so high now. Right, but, but even those were done to the benefit of the insiders. Uh, the SEC did an investigation and found out that in every case, buybacks are done for the benefit of the insiders of the companies because that's who sells back the stocks. And this is one of the big fallacies about buybacks that people are talking about. It's like, it's a return of capital to shareholders. Really? I mean, did you get a check in the mail when Apple bought back shares of Apple? No, you did. The only P did and did somebody call you and say, "Hey, Adam, I want to buy your shares back." Nobody from Apple called you. I mean, as an individual, I can buy and sell shares of Apple every day on the market. The only people that benefit from the share buybacks are the insiders, who are the ones selling their shares, which are generally restricted back to the company, and that's how they 
create these massive, you know, this massive wealth of C-suite executives. And, you know, but it's, it's not a return of capital to shareholders. You got nothing from it. And people say, well, the stock price went up. Yeah, Apple did buybacks all during 2022 when the stock price was going down. So that, that doesn't hold water either. Um, it's just a function. And, and look, there's been plenty of studies. It's a function to manipulate EPS in order to meet Wall Street estimates. The other 10% of the fudging comes from CFOs to beat EPS. So that, that's that's all this comes down to. Right. And you know, to compensate many times richly your executive staff, right? Capital is going to shareholders. It's just going to a very few <laughs> who are the and inside then, top executives. And actually, the, the the correct statement, you know, you made the statement, uh, the, the right statement, which is, you know, we've looked around the whole universe of the world and our stock is the only thing we're spending money on. The actual, the, the reality, that, and, and, and you're right, that's an absolute fallacy. The reality, though, is, is that what companies are saying by doing buybacks is that I've looked all around the world and I cannot find a single thing better to do with my money. I, that that I can generate as much benefit for myself than buybacks right now. I mean, think about all the money I could have used. You know, Apple could have bought a, a new technology company to you know do something uh, right. to help them, and, and to, you know, go buy an AI company. You know, go fund a big AI company. The problem with that is is that if I buy a company, it may take years for that acquisition. To a neuro generate the return. Yeah. Exactly. So and that takes too long. I can just do a buyback. I can get it right now. So, you know, the, the problem is, is that these buybacks, and there was a reason why buybacks were illegal until 1990. Um, but, you know, the, the problem with this is, and, you know, the average American, you know, we take their polls, they're upset about the economy. I, I wrote an article about that earlier. You know, you take a look at polls. I mean, average Americans upset about the economy. They're upset about the wealth gap. They're upset about all this. But this buybacks are one of the big reasons that contribute to that, because if companies didn't have that option to do buybacks, they would have to spend that capital making an acquisition, building a plant, creating jobs, doing those type of things, which would actually inure to the benefit of a broader swath of Americans and make uh, make the economy much more profitable. Well, I'm going to I'm going to still stick to my prediction that at some point in our lifetime, buybacks will likely be uh they illegal will. again, and I will cheer that when it happens. Well, um, probably, there will probably never be made illegal because there's too many people on, on the political side that benefit from it. But um, there will be an end to buybacks. There will definitely be an end. Be an end, yeah. And, and yeah, I because, think because at some point every company will go private, so there won't be a market. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they got themselves totally back. Yeah, I, I I'll predict before then that that you know there will be some tight, tough times for the country and buybacks and, and the enrichment of the C-suite through them is going to come into the, the public's crosshairs and it's going to become an election issue at some point in time. And, and some politicians going to use it as their their way to get into office. Well, and again, you know, the problem right now is, is, is that before that can happen, there has to be this realization that right now, see, buybacks are treated as gold because it's a return of capital shareholder. It absolutely is not, but that's the lie that's been perpetrated on the average American. And so they think buybacks are a good thing. And, oh, they're giving me money back. No, they're not giving you a damn thing back. Right. But just, just, just remember Dividend. too, though, 93% of, of financial assets are owned by only 10% of households. So a lot of, you know, the, yeah, that, that means that the other 90% are saying like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not benefiting at all from this. <laughs> This is a true statement. So yeah. anyway, all right, let's not rain on that today. All right. Well, okay. Before I forget though, let 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 let's get to your point though about um, 
you know, um, well, why why might not we see a melt-up here because of these trillions in cash on the sidelines, quote unquote, uh, flooding into stocks? Um, so yeah, a couple of reasons. So first of all, the, you know, there's this every time that we start having a, a you know kind of a melt up in the market or whatever. This has been one of the go. This is not a new thing, um, by the way, of of the average you know person saying, oh, it's the cash on the sidelines, and we're gonna have all this. But every time we get these big you know run ups and and money market balances, particularly last year in particular, <clears throat> you know, there's this idea that all this money is gonna come rushing back into the markets. And that really never is the case. And, and you know, there's a, a couple of reasons for that. <clears throat> so this is the, the um, increase in total money market funds going back to 2011. Obviously, you see this big jump during the pandemic shutdown, uh, the bank crisis, you know, savings kind of went, you know, this money market kind of went sideways for a while. And then just, just recently um, has taken off, you know, up again as we just had this big, this big pile in into this. However, in order for money to be on the sidelines, right, it's got to come in and, and to come into the market, then it's got to be in somebody's investment coffers, right? So first of all, the first thing you have to remember is, is that there really cannot be cash on the sidelines. And the reason is, is that for every buyer of a stock, there has to be a seller of a stock. So think about it like a football team where I have 11, I, I can have 300 players sitting on my benches, but I can only have 11 players on the field. And if I want to swap out a player, I've got to take one out and put one in, right? I can't put 300 people on the field to win the game, right? <laughs> so it's just, that's not the way it works. So for every buyer, there's a seller. So the only difference is that you could have a trillion dollars of money come into the market today. And you'd have to have a trillion dollars worth of selling on the other side so that trillion dollars could buy something. So there's always an equilibrium. Now, the, the, the reason that people think that money will go, that money will cause the market to go up is that the market, as the market advances, they go, oh, all this money's coming into the markets. That's why market's going up. No, we just have an imbalance of buyers and sellers. And so right now, in order to buy something, sellers are going, yeah, I'll sell you my Apple or my NVIDIA right now, but man, you're gonna have to pay up for it. And if you wanna buy it, you're gonna have to buy it from me at this price. So buyers are having to step up to find that. So, so the, the only difference between the buying and the selling is where that, at what price that transaction takes place. So in theory, if we had a whole bunch of that money that everybody woke up today and said, hey, I'm buying the stock market today. And everybody went and pulled all their savings out of the bank and threw it to their money market account and their brokerage account, and then went and bought stocks. Yeah, it would push the stock price up today because all of a sudden you had this rush of buyers and it brought the equilibrium of the transaction price higher. But as soon as that rush of money is over, prices are going to come back down. And because again, markets are going to find their balance and it's always an equilibrium of, of the buying and the selling. But so let's talk about where all the cash is, right? So there's all this money sitting in money market accounts, but where is it in terms of the market? So if we take a look at the equity to money market asset ratio, it's come down a bit here since 20, the peak of the market in 2022, but it's still at the highest level. In other words, there's a whole lot more equity ownership than there is cash on the books um, across the board. So, I mean, you're still at a level higher than we were at the peak of the market of the bubbles and, and the dot-com crisis, as well as, as 2008 financial crisis. So not a lot of cash sitting there from that perspective. Take a look at the American Association of Retail Investors. 
they're heavily allocated towards equities. They've got 65% of their money in equities. They've got another uh, 30% or so in bonds. They've got very little cash sitting in their money market accounts. If you're invested in the market right now and you've got a whole lot of cash in your, in your portfolio, you're probably going, I'm not making any money. I need to get to the market. That's what retail investors have been doing for the last, since October, 2022, is piling that money back into the, into the market. So that's retail. If we take a look at a little bit different way, um, if we take a look at the amount of money market cash we have, so this is the total amount of money market cash, the 7 trillion, as a function of the market capitalization, there's not that much money there relative to the market cap of the, of, of the financial markets. So that's interesting. You know, it's, 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 it's a very low now, but interestingly, look at the bottom of the market in 2009, Look at the at the money market to capitalization ratio at that point and look at it at the dot com crisis. And then, you know, 1984, we were kind of coming out of that whole double back to back scenario with recessions and all that. But you take a look at the dot com bubble in 2008. Those were points where there was a lot of cash relative to market capitalization, which helped fuel the bull market. So, you know, right now with where the markets are, there's not a lot of support. OK, but now let's talk about professionals. If you take a look at mutual funds around there, they have some of the lowest cash on record. <laughs> so there's there's not if you if you're looking for this massive amount of money coming into the market, it's not in retail markets. It's not in investment accounts. It's not in an area that's going to flow into the markets. Where is all that money? Hey, so, yeah, we're, and, and real quick, and you can answer right? this in your answer here. Is, is that a sign that the the retail and I guess maybe the institutional investor? is pretty fully invested. Yeah. Right. That they, exactly. they, they, yeah. That's exactly what it is. Okay. Most people, most people that are invested in the markets don't have a lot of cash sitting on here. Um, and, and again, and now there's another way to look at this. So this is from the, the government office that reports and main and, and, you know, tracks all the money, money market account balances. So this is prime money market government, tax exempt, prime institutional government, tax exempt retail, prime retail, which is that little yellow band. Prime retail is where your money, that's that's the retail money market. That big blue chunk that's there, that kind of light blue, that's the massive amount of the money that's there. Those are institutional prime money market funds. Those accounts are generally minimum of a $100,000 account balance. A lot of them are a million dollars as a minimum account balance. This is where, so now this is where institutions and companies are holding their cash. That cash that's used for operating expenses, payroll, those type of issues where, you know, you think about a company like Apple or Google or Meta or Berkshire Hathaway that has 130 billion in cash on hand, that's where that money is. That That's the money that's used for stock buybacks and, and other stuff like that. <laughs> But that's not money that's going to come flooding into the retail, you know, kind of stock market positioning. So, again, most of that is for corporations or high net worth individuals that is slated for other use, not buying, you know, shares of a company in the market. Okay, so. Um, yeah, I mean, you're kind of dismantling this this expectation that there's this you know, tsunami of, of cash that could just easily flood in here. Um, I like your football team analogy. Maybe just a, a more simple way for folks to think about that, though, is um, uh, I, I'm investor A. 
uh, Lance is investor B. Um, Lance has a stock I want to buy from him. So my cash is in bank A. And I take that cash and I give it to Lance to buy his stock. Mm -hmm. uh, Lance then sells his stock, gives his stock to me, right? Because I've just given him cash. And he has to put that cash somewhere. So he puts it in bank B. Right. So the same amount of cash has stayed in the banking system. It's not like it's gone and stayed in the market. All that exchanged hands was the stock at whatever price we transacted at. But the cash itself was in the banking system. And then it went right back into the banking system. <laughs> exactly. And and uh, I just want to focus on this one last chart here. This is the four week change in share buybacks versus the S&P 500. I just want you to notice that ever since really 2000 and about 15, really going back, you could say really in 2009, it started to grow, but you can just see how that volatility, how that, that range of transactions has just expanded really since the financial crisis. And that's where all that money's just been going into stock buybacks ever since then. You know, and it's interesting, one of the things, just last, last point about money markets is that money markets, if you take a look at this chart, this chart goes back to 1974. So this is money market total assets in millions. Back to 1974. What's interesting about this is, is that the X, if you just kind of drew a, a linear trend, money markets have just been accumulating ever since 1974. There's, there's never a period where you see this massive drawdown in money market accounts because it went somewhere else. It went to the markets or whatever. It's just been accumulating. And, and it just continues to accumulate. The more that we do you know, debt-driven finance and those type of things, um, you have this expansion of these money market account balances. Ironically, when those when those balances are drawing down the most is during the period you really don't want to be involved in the markets, which is during the dot-com crash, during the financial crisis. That's when money's getting liquidated and, and really, quote unquote, effectively destroyed um, during that those financial crisis moments. And even during the, the pandemic, we saw money markets kind of flatline and then started taking off again. But this is just, this goes back to, you know, who is it that's actually storing all this cash? And it's mostly companies. It's just as, as companies, you know, have not a use for their cash, there's just getting piled up in money market accounts. So Lance, I would assume that the correlation between the, the accumulation of money market funds over time uh, and the money supply is probably pretty tight. Is it? Have you ever mapped it to? I haven't mapped it to. Um, but just kind of eyeballing it, I would suggest it would probably I would probably imagine that the correlation would be decently high. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll do the work. I'll, I'll do the the. I'll check it out. Okay. Yeah, and it just might be a, it's in some way sort of a soft proxy for money supply. Yeah. Um. Okay. Well, look. Uh, super interesting. Um, so much to get through. Let's let's charge ahead and see if we can <laughs> we can get through it at least most of this list before I got a split to the airport to go meet up with you there in Houston. Yep. Um, okay, so uh, we've got a, a Fed meeting coming up this week, right? Um, so, you know, Jerome Powell surprised everybody at the last one. Um, we'll see what happens this time around. Um, I've been asking a second, you know, what if anything are you expecting to hear at this one? Um, I just want to give the context that former Fed chair, Janet Yellen, uh, was just interviewed recently, and she's, I don't know if she's foaming the soft landing runway or whatever, but she's shes trying to talk up, uh, you know, the positive sentiment that seems to be continuing to build here with this bullish stampede. She said that she thinks 2024 is going to be, quote, a very 
good economic year. Um, she cites consumers and households feeling confident enough about their own personal financial situation and about the economic outlook to be spending in a way that's creating jobs, creating growth, and is providing them with the income to go on doing that. And I don't see a reason why that can't continue. Um, so I might I might take some issue with something she said there, but but anyway, she's out there saying, "Look, happy days are here again." Um, any comments on Yellow's, Yellen's uh, comments there? And then, what do you what are you expecting, if anything, to hear from the Fed this week? Well, so first of all, Janet Yellen's never been right about anything, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> um, you know, she's the one that said we'd never see a crisis in our lifetime again. Then we have the COVID shutdown. So you know, <laughs> you know, you just take it for what it's worth. Um, you know, here, you know, we, we've written a couple of articles recently about what's going on with the Fed, and, and we've made some comments in our daily commentary as well. Um, you know, it was a it was a very interesting change. You know, on December the first, Jerome Powell says, "Hey, you know, no reason to you know, no reason to cut rates right now." I'm Wait, we're not even thinking about talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just paraphrasing. And then they, December 13th, it's like, oh, yeah, we're, 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 we're trying to figure out the best way to start cutting rates. And it was like this immediate change. And, you know, you know, I've talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, this reminds me very much of 2018 and 2019, where the Fed said, hey, we're nowhere near the neutral rate. And a month later, they're at the neutral rate and the markets are down 20 percent. And then by June, they're cutting rates and we're doing reverse repo and, you know, trying to stave off, you know, some type of financial event in the markets. And. You know, so the, this change in attitude certainly is, is suspicious from the standpoint that there may be some stress financially with one of their member banks or maybe a few of them, um, that there's a problem that's potentially brewing in the overall economy. And, you know, don't know that, um, and we won't know that for a while, but it, that change is certainly not something, I mean, they were, you know, steadfast, say, we're here to fight inflation, inflation's not at our target yet. We're not even thinking about thinking about cutting rates, and then all of a sudden we are. You know that's that suggests there's some other risk that's going on that's that's out there that we may not be aware of yet. And, and so you know, I, it, you know, you, from the from Powell's standpoint, you have to be somewhat concerned about this FOMO market we've got going on because that is increasing consumer confidence. If you look at the last the the last consumer confidence report. It was a massive jump in consumer confidence. It's, and consumer confidence is now the highest it's been in two and a half years. That's not what you want in an economy you're trying to slow down to beat inflation. Uh, personal spending just came in on Friday up seven tenths of a percent. Big jump in personal spending. That's not what you want to see if you're trying to combat inflation. Now, PCE came in in line at 0.2, but that spending, that consumption, that confidence is not what you want. I mean, this is the whole reason Ben Bernanke did quantitative easing in 2010. He says the reason we're, we're doing quantitative easing is to lift asset prices, to boost consumer confidence, to strengthen the economy. Well, you've got consumer confidence running off the rails right now. People's expectations of retirement income is at an all-time high. People's expectation of inflation is dropping. People's expectation of higher stock prices in the year is very near a record. So, you know, everybody's getting very, very bullish about the economy and the markets and everything is great. That's increasing consumer confidence. That's inflationary. That is going to provide some inflationary impulse into the economy, or at least if not inflationary impulse, it's going to make a contraction of inflation much harder to obtain. So instead of inflation being at 3% going to two, 
it may hang out at two and a half or 2.8% for a while because of just that consumer confidence. Now, the big question, of course, is how long can the, the consumer hang in there considering they're borrowing money as fast as they can, um, you know, just to kind of sustain their lifestyle. But, you know, we'll, we'll see how this, this plays out. But, you know, it's, I can't, you know, it would not surprise me at the Fed meeting to see Powell try to walk back a little bit of this exuberance, try to push out, you know, the market's expecting five to seven rate cuts this year. Can't imagine Jerome Powell coming out confirming that. I, I would expect him to say, we're, we're thinking about cutting rates, but it might not be till the last half of this year or something just to try to pull some of the exuberance out of the market. That wouldn't surprise me. I'm not saying you will. It just wouldn't surprise me if you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's so interesting about those those confidence numbers, too, just because, and this is more anecdotal than everything else, but, you know, I, from what I hear from the average person, you know, is not the sense of like, oh, best year ever, right? Like, oh, all of a sudden, I'm super, I'm not worried anymore about the future, and I'm yeah. not worried about this, the cost of living. I'm not worried about these record high uh, housing prices, Uh and even this job market that we're told is so amazing. You know, I hear lots and lots of stories of qualified people saying like, you know, who are between jobs saying like, I'm sending out, I'm not going to gazillion of doors and I'm not hearing much back. I mean, it, 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 there does seem to be a real disconnect between the headlines and, and some of the data that's being touted and, and the general vibe, at least that I hear. And I realize that that's anecdotal, but obviously you don't have to scratch much at all to go on the internet and poke around, do a couple of Google searches and see lots and lots of articles about the plight of the average uh, consumer. So it, it is interesting to see that disconnect. It is. All right, um, so I wanna put up a, uh, a chart here. Um, this is a chart on uh, interest on the national debt. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see here that it's just gone, you know, completely exponential, almost vertical. Um, as interest rates have have cranked up here with the Fed uh, rate hike campaign. Um, and I, I want to talk with you about the concept of fiscal dominance, Lance. Um, but but just looking at this chart, there's lots of things that are exponential, right? We can find all sorts of exponential trends um, in the economy and and whatnot. but but this has to have a limit on it, right? Because um, this is money that, has to be spent annually and the u.s government annual budget is finite i mean yeah we can goose it up with deficit spending and whatnot but but not to infinity forever um uh, i mean i guess if we want to just kill the currency overnight sure no, no that's that no 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 you got two different things going on here so first of all you just said that you know this can't go indefinitely higher because of the budget we don't have a budget we haven't had a budget since 2008. We run continuing resolutions, which means that every year a continuing resolution says, okay, you had a trillion to spend last year. This year you have a trillion plus 8%. So everything is excused by 8%, not including any additional spending they tack on. So if interest rates remain exactly where they are and don't move, right? Interest rates will go up or down. That interest service expense is going to keep going up in that parabolic line because we keep spending 8% more than we did last year just at the bare at the bare run that doesn't include any additional stuff they throw on there like you know 150 billion for ukraine or whatever it is right so yeah it can just keep going up forever because you know janet yellen can just turn on the printing press and just print more dollars to pay it well now, I'm, so saying, I'm not saying there's not a bad economic outcome from that but 
Right. But, you know, when it when it when it overwhelms tax receipts and there's all sorts of other mandatory spending that has to go on, the only thing you can do basically is 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 borrow that. Right. And then that just destroys the currency. So if we're worried about inflation and, you know, it's getting to the point where consumers are getting really angry about it. Yeah, But hold on a second. How does borrowing money destroy the currency? Because the dollar has been going up. Oh, I'm saying if the, if the treasurer is borrowing it from the Fed, right? <laughs> you know, if if we get to the point where basically the the Fed has to print the money to let the treasury then well, borrow to pay this but, stuff. Hold on a second. The Fed doesn't print money. The treasury prints money. The treasury is the printing press. The Fed just credits the banks. Well, the, yeah. Okay. So it's it's the enabler, right? So basically, if 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 foreigners aren't buying, if 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 we go to the point where we're just letting this thing go hog wild, right? You, presumably, yeah. many other buyers are going to say, "Look, I don't want to get your, <laughs> I don't want to buy your treasury bonds anymore. You guys are fast becoming a banana republic." The only buyer out there is the Fed. But my point is, is that is this is growing so much faster than receipts. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it basically overwhelms everything else that we're doing. And we either have to make a decision to say, look, we, we've we've got to do something to get this under control or we're going to go full banana republic. Well, see, there's a lot of fallacy, though, in that, because, again, now you're talking you've got to introduce the concept of reserve currency status. You've got to do all this other stuff, because, again, look, I'm not I'm not arguing that printing money and, and debt is a good <laughs> thing. I'm not, don't get me wrong on this, but, you know, we've got to be careful with the statements that we make because they have consequences. So, you know, if you, you know, right now we're printing a lot of debt, right? It took $2.50 of debt just to generate the dollar's worth of growth last year. I mean, it's just, that's just where we are. Right. Um, if you look at it longer term, we're spending closer to $5 of debt to spend, to, to create a dollar's worth of growth. That's, that's not a long-term benefit. That's why we don't have economic growth. You know, if, if you take a look at economic prosperity and those type of things, the reason that we don't have that and the reason, you know, back in the 90s, we used to say 2% economic growth was was pre-recession. That was a recession warning. If you're at 2% economic growth, you got to be careful. You're about to be in a recession. Right. Now, now we're like, good job. <laughs> yeah, we're just like, man, if we just get 2% growth, we're doing awesome, right? That, that's That's terrible. And that's a function of all this debt that we've got going. But, you know, Yes, right now there's no limit to how much money we can print. There's no much. There's really not a limit to the debt that we can produce because right now there's nowhere else for anybody else to store currency. You're not going to store it in Russia, China, Brazil, Venezuela. Your only place to store reserve currencies, which is also a big part of that money market balance, is foreign or is foreign deposits. So you know, there's the the government right now has a tremendous amount of runway because there's no alternative. I'm not saying that there won't be, it's not gonna be Bitcoin, um, but- right. you know, it, it, you're, you're, you're arguing the Brent Johnson dollar well, milkshake, it, it, like it, it, love it or hate it, it's 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 just the fact. Yeah, it's just the fact of what it is. And, and unfortunately, right, this keeps our government being, being fiscally responsible. And I, I completely support your point that you're making. Don't think I'm arguing with you because I'm not. It's just important to understand that, you know, the, you know, when you say things like, you know, it's going to destroy our currency immediately, I start getting emails from people going, if the currency is going to zero, then why am I invested in stocks, right? It's just, you know, we're talking about something that's take decades and probably will be dead before this occurs. I mean, look at Japan, you know, as a function of that, you know. Yeah, but, although, although let's let's tug on that because I, I don't necessarily know the answer here. And I, I understand the, the risk that you're talking about, um, but at this exponential 
I mean, this this getting now sort of near vertical, let's just assume that we just said we don't care, right? <laughs> but we, just, we've, already, we've already said we don't care. I know, every, but we, every really continuing said, resolution is a we don't care. <laughs> right. But but really, we don't care. Right. That like, yeah, whatever. You know what? So what? this thing just goes way higher than, you know, the revenues we take in every year. And we'll just sure we'll borrow 10 trillion in a little bit and then we'll borrow 100 trillion. Right. Whatever. Right. Um, you know, that 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 will accelerate the decline of purchasing power in the U.S. dollar as we as Americans within America will experience it. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, Your quality of life will get worse. Right. And it'll get worse faster if we continue growing at an exponential rate because exponentials speed up as they go on. Right. That's correct. Yeah. So no, argu no, no argument there. Okay. Yeah. And just to be clear to your point, no one's saying it's it's going to go into the, the dumpster of history tomorrow. Um, but we're we're at a concerning point here, right? Where this is, you know, it's it, I don't have the chart up anymore, but I mean it it's yeah. Well, no, it's but but, you, but it's it's a true point. But like I said, you know, we're at one hundred and twenty percent. I don't know. I haven't looked at the the latest number because it goes moves so fast today. But you know, we're at like one hundred and twenty percent of debt to GDP. Japan's at two thirty, right? And take a look at what's going on with the Nikkei stock market. You know, it's just that's going. I'll talk about something going vertical. That's the you know the the Nikkei. So you know, it's just you know these. You know, this can last. And here's my, this is my point, right? Again, yeah, and I'm not, I don't disagree with the, this point you're about to make, just to be clear. Yeah, I'm, and yeah, just, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you about the evils and, and the, of, of just being fiscally, uh, you know, irresponsible, which our government is doing. It's just, it can last so much longer than you can possibly imagine. And again, you know, I'll be dead probably before this becomes a real problem. Unfortunately, my kids' kids. I, I, I really don't envy the future for my kids. They're going to have a challenge. I think their children are going to really have a challenge. Yeah, I agree. I, I um, My hope is that the challenge gets addressed just because it's. I think it, it may just have to be uh, in our kids' lives. And then maybe our grandkids, we can hope that they're, they're you know, w whatever follows saner thinking will prevail and, and, and they'll be growing up in that better world. But I don't know, yeah. time will tell. I mean, um, consider we've got we're about to have civil war break out on the Texas border. I mean, <laughs> hey, 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 yeah, you're getting to my rant. Hold on to that for a second. Don't, okay. Yeah, don't, don't, don't. Uh, I'll jump there. Okay. Yeah, don't, don't get the punch on that too early. Um, uh, okay. Um, but, uh, but, but again, I want to, I want to push back just for debate sense on this, which is, yeah, in terms of like the U.S. dollar potentially losing its reserve currency status and all that stuff. Yeah, I, that's probably after we're dead. Right. But you and I could have had this discussion about the profligacy of, uh, you know, the spending profligacy of, of, of our government and our concerns about purchasing power and all that stuff four years ago before anyone had ever heard of COVID. Right. And when you look at the inflection that that chart took, right, in my mind, that just that just speeds up the timer here. And, um, you know, you, you look at just the the trauma that that households um, household purchasing power has taken in the past three years, right? Right? Like you know, if we continue going at the rate at which we're currently going at right now, or faster, which exponential uh, systems uh, suggest will happen, I, I can see some real problems happening in our lifetimes um, around this. And again, it's 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 not from a Mad Max standpoint or whatnot or collapse of the empire, but it's just like this is. 
the other rant I was going to have with you. Maybe I'll pull this up here. Home heating costs have gone bananas this year, right? I mean, there's a lot, there's lots of other costs that have gone up. We railed in the past about like insurance costs that are going up across a lot of homes right now. But in addition to all the other cost of livings at the grocery store, you know, at medical care, at the pump, education, all that type of stuff, uh, all of a sudden, just just essentials for living, like staying warm in the wintertime, have gotten a lot more expensive. And uh, I just saw an article the other day that said um, heating your home in the winter has now become a luxury for many people. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I'll tell you, and I hate to share this, it's probably going to blow some people's minds, but um I just got a warning two days ago from PG&E, which is the electrical and gas company out here in California, the lights on the that, my, that my home heating bill is in danger of passing $1,000 this month, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm just like, I mean, I'm blown away from that. We, we, we certainly haven't done anything differently that we normally do. Um, and uh, I'm just thinking, I don't know how many families could have their home heating bill, you know, go from like 300 bucks a month to 1000 bucks a month. Um this quickly, right? So, like, uh, I, I, I do, I do worry because we're we're seeing such an increase in the cost of living on the essentials right now that if if we continue growing at this pace, like, there's a good chunk of America that's going to have to start tapping out and just say, I, I can't do it. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it, it's it's you know, it's it's problematic. I mean, we're seeing it. Like, it's interesting because you know we just had sub twenty you know degrees here, and I love cold weather, right? So. Like we don't even turn our heater on in our house. So yeah, cold, but cold weather for you is like seeing yeah. a purple elephant. It's it's a rare yeah. thing that you hardly. Yeah, no, 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 it gets hot, you know that's for sure. But yeah, I mean heating and cooling both, and, and that was my point. You know, heating and cooling both is getting expensive depending on where you live, right? So you live up north, you worry about the heating costs because it never gets that hot during the summer. In the south, right. You know, the heating in the winter is not that big of a deal. It's, it's the summer cooling that becomes very problematic. Right. And sorry, sorry to interrupt, but your point is, is that like, these aren't luxuries. These are existential needs, right? You live in Minnesota, you die in the winter if your house isn't <laughs> warm enough. You live in Texas, you die if you can't cool down when it's like 112 outside. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, how many how many people or how many articles do you read every year where somebody, you know, burned their house down because they started a fire inside their house to stay warm? Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's just that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, no. Look, this is this is what I was saying earlier about, you know, when you talk about money market funds, you talk about, you know, these type of things. You also have to understand that money market balances, by and large, is just a, a point of what we're talking about, is held by a very small percentage of, of people. Right. The vast majority of people have no savings. And so if you already have no savings and then your cost of heating goes up dramatically and the cost of food goes up dramatically and the cost of these other things go up, you know, it's. It's it's a fight. And, and I, look, I see, you know, when I'm like on social media, on Twitter and stuff, I get, you know, I just get inundated with people's comments about, well, a good example of this, right? As I published this article about money market account balances, and I made this statement in the article, let me, uh, hold on a second, let me just read this statement to you, because it sparked a whole big fight <laughs> in, in the... the uh, Wait, you, you said something that sparked yeah. a fight? I don't believe yeah. that, Lance. So Adam, this is this is actually a point that I made um, earlier this week. I wrote an article. Um, Newsmax asked me to write an article for them about these all-time highs in the markets, and, and really to the point of what we're talking about, right? This all goes back to sentiment. And you know, if you're having trouble heating your home and you're having trouble, you know, putting food on the table, your sentiment's not great. As we were talking about before, you know, this sentiment issue 
is is very interesting because again we are to your to your you know, kind of to your point you made is that you know what we're seeing sentiment increase and this is a composite index of consumer sentiment so uh the black line is the is the consumer confidence the blue line is consumer expectations they have improved right but they're well off their highs and so even though we're seeing some improvement, that improvement is really kind of on the, the upper end of, of income earners that are the market's going up, their stock market, their stock balances are going up, their 401k plans going up. And, you know, when you talk about 401k plans, that's 25% of the population. Big chunk of people are not in 401k plans. So they're not getting that benefit. But, you know, this is, and so I made this, I made this statement. I said, so when, you know, you're looking at this as consumer confidence improves. I said th this was the quote um, that I that I put out that I got a ton of lashback on Twitter because I said, given that higher rates remain and consumers have drained most of their savings, there is likely only a limited impact on further improvements in confidence. While stocks are currently registering all-time highs, much of that gain is based on the assumption the Federal Reserve will cut rates and, and reintroduce monetary liquidity. So the comment was, is that is a super elitist statement. Only people in the financial markets, you know, get the benefit from those Fed policies. That's actually a true statement that they made, right? Because 80% of Americans don't participate in what's happening. And so when you talk about things like increasing heating costs, increasing cooling costs, that's the real world of what's going on. And there's a massive gap right now between people's ability to make ends meet and you know their ability to you know uh, invest in the stock market as an example that just doesn't exist for a lot of people. Uh, I don't know what else I can say except just sort of amen, brother. I think you really put your finger on it there. Um, and I know we rant about this an awful lot in terms of the the massive disparity between what the top households enjoy and and you know all the pain that dribbles down to the bottom. What do you want to say? Eighty percent, ninety percent. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, it's it's going to be super interesting as how this manifests throughout the rest of the year, um, especially given that it's election year and how much of this bubbles up, um, you know, onto the the radar of of the the two candidates running for president at the end. Um, it's interesting because things like um, immigration right now are are at the top for a lot, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. Um, but uh, but these sort of you know base needs, I think, are going to be a higher, uh, you know, this is going to be one of those, it's the economy stupid elections, I think, you know, especially as we get closer to uh, to November. Hey, real quick, because it's related to that quote you just talked about, um, I, I want to get back to that point of fiscal dominance. Right. Um, so I'm going to read this definition here of fiscal dominance, then we can talk about it a bit. Um, fiscal dominance occurs when an National debt has reached levels such that a nation is unable to pay it down with taxes and requires monetary policy support in order to stay solvent. In such a situation, it is difficult to control inflation because raising interest rates can make it impossible for the government to pay its debt. So there's right. a number of analysts that I interview that are, are beginning to say, hey, we're, we're now in the era of fiscal dominance. And these are folks like Lynn Alden, Luke Broman, just to name a few. Um, you know, you look at that interest rate uh, spike that, in that chart I just showed earlier, and you're like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, we're in the era where, you know, it, it, it's really getting hard uh, for the government to 
you know, pay what it needs yeah. to pay with the incomes that it, it the, the with the national income that comes in, and it's having to resort to ever greater deficit spending and borrowing, and that's the fiscal side of things here, right? So, and then that's, so, that's, that's also to your point earlier about the Fed monetizing debt. That's why going forward, the Fed's going to have to monetize thirty to forty percent of the debt, debt issuance because interest rates can't go up, right? You can't have increasing deficits being generated by interest rates. So they're going to have to suppress interest rates in order to keep issuing the debt. So to your point earlier, the Fed's going to have to monetize a lot of that debt issuance to keep rates down at a level that's maintainable. Right. So the the, the problem with this is, is um, I mean, there are all the issues that are going to come from that. Um, but as, as the, the fiscal side is being more and more relied on, uh, two things happen. One is, you know, that's money that gets out eventually into the economy and creates inflation, right? right. Um, and then secondarily, what this is saying is, is the Fed, the, the Fed kind of has to start beginning to give up its inflation mandate because it's like, I'm just trying to hold the system together at this point, right? So to a, your earlier comment there about, um, you know, Powell might be walking down expectations of, hey, maybe I'm not going to cut as much and whatnot. Like it, 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 in an era of fiscal dominance, it gets harder and harder for the Fed to to tame inflation. And right. you know, we're we we, we it, Fed's kind of almost taken a premature victory lap here that like inflation's totally done and the markets are parting hard. You know, based on that, but that might be one of the surprises coming to the markets and in the general economy going forward. Here is if we are indeed in this era of fiscal dominance the Fed really may not be able to keep that horse, either get the horse back in the barn or keep it in that barn. Right. Well, this is, look, this is why QT is scheduled to end probably in March, um, if not May. And QE will be back by third quarter of the year. Because again, you've got to get interest rates down. You've got to monetize the debt. You've got to reintroduce liquidity back into the marketplace. So, you know, that's that's why there's all the, the Fed is making this about base is because the risk is there. This drain of liquidity from what they were doing with hiking rates rising deficit interest, all that, that's all a drain on economic activity. So if you're going to try to sustain this, particularly going into an election, you're going to have to start reversing that policy, which is what's going on. So just to put you on the spot, if you had to take the over or the under on current inflation expectations for the next year or two, what would you be taking? Um, I, I've actually been talking about this a little bit. It wouldn't, look, we're not going to go back to 9% inflation. Okay, that's, that's not going to happen unless we start issuing checks again and shutting down the economy. So right now we still have an abundance of inventory that has to be worked off. So that's deflationary. Um, so, but it wouldn't surprise me now. Now remember though, we measure inflation on a year over year basis. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to see inflation tick up to, you know, three and a half, you know, maybe even closer to 4% just on a year over year basis. That wouldn't be surprising. Um, you know, if that occurs, we'll see what happens. But if you have stronger economic activity and we kind of keep on this, this pulse of activity we've had going on, and again, because of all this money coming into the economy from the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and all that, which was not an Inflation Reduction Act, it was an Inflation Builder Act. Um, you know, so with all that money coming into the system, it wouldn't surprise me to see inflation tick up a little bit before it goes lower. So again, you know, I think we're that you know we're potentially about to get into that time frame where the year-over-year -year comparisons are, you know, when you have a, a you know a big drop in inflation that you know if we come in with a 0.3.4, we see inflation tick up a little bit, and that you know so you see inflation kind of level off and stabilize where it is, 
And then once we potentially get out 25 or 26, we see that start to tailor down towards 2%. Because that's just gonna be a function of economic growth, ultimately. So the more debt you have, the lower economic activity you have, ultimately long-term. So as we go from, you know, rather strong economic growth in the third and fourth quarter of this past year, that's going to start to tailor off as we get into 2025, which as that economic growth slows, that money comes out of the system, inflation will come down with that. But again, it may be longer to get there than people think. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, let's see here. Um, so kind of related, um, interest rates um, and bonds. So um uh, every week I always get asked the question, hey, what's Lance's latest on bonds, right? So um, I made the mistake last week of getting so wrapped up in our, our rant uh, that I didn't ask you your trades. Um, so I'm going to do that in a minute. But if you can just give us the latest on how you and your partner, Michael Leibowitz there, are looking at, at bonds right now, where you think interest rates are headed this year, what impact you think that's going to have on bonds, and then give a specific update on the TLT trade, because I get asked about that almost as much as I'm sure you do. Yeah. Uh, let's do yeah. that. So yeah, no, interest rates will, are, again, look, just like I said, the, 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 the Fed, the government have to get interest rates down. That's just uh, that's just bottom line. Uh, interest rates are too high for the consumer. It's too high for the economy. It's too high for the debt. So interest rates have to come down. We've got too much debt in the system to maintain these levels of interest rates. The deflationary pressure from the debt is going to drag economic growth lower. That will drag inflation lower ultimately, and interest rates will track inflation over time. So you know, we, we talked about in November, um, or, or actually in December, that you know we had taken a little bit of that our our bond trade off the table, just took a little bit of profit because we had that big drop in yields that really got you know to a very overbought level for bonds. So bonds got very overbought short term. So we've been going through that corrective process, a very healthy one now for the for the fixed income market. Bond prices have come back down. They're sitting right on their moving average. They started to bottom here lately. We're getting oversold. Uh, we're still in a MACD sell signal for bonds. That's about to turn positive. That signal is improving back towards a buy signal. So I would suspect that within the next, you know, probably three weeks, maybe four, that we're going to get a buy signal on bonds again. So we're getting pretty close. And it's it's we've had enough time to work through this uh, overbought condition on bonds to, you know, be, be in a good setup position now for the next leg higher in, in uh, bond prices. Okay, so you guys are basically preparing for an entry point here. Um, and will TLT still be your main vehicle for making that trade? Or will you be buying individual bonds like you had switched um, to earlier? Well, yeah, we switched from TLT to individual bonds um, mid last year, third, second quarter of last year. Um, and then in our, our Simplevisor equity model, um, we use EDV. We switched from TLT to EDV to extend the duration. So that's where we'll be adding to all right. Hey, real quick, can you just give like the 60 seconds on Simplevisor? Because I've had a, a number of people ask about it, in particular, people who live outside the U.S. Right. to say, hey, is this something that I can subscribe to and, and just use it to inform, you know, my, my trading or my investing decision making? Can you just remind folks that aren't familiar with what Simplevisor is? With that yeah, service and, and, and actually, we're, we're going through a whole big upgrade right now. We hope to roll it out in the next month or so. Uh, but we're completely revamping the whole site, bringing in a whole bunch of new tools. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think it's going to be great. And we just launched a brand new portfolio this week on that platform. So, but, but Simplevisor is a, a basically a, a do-it-yourself type of uh, investment research platform. So as you want to, you know, research stocks, look at the markets, 
um, build, you know, build and track your own portfolios. You can do that. We publish, uh, there's a variety of information on here talking about, you know, we look at the internals of the market, what's performing, major markets, uh, analyzing those ETFs and sectors, you know, what's working, what's not working. Sentiment, we look, we run multiple sentiment indicators uh, that kind of tell you where we are within the market cycle, um, what stocks are working, what stocks aren't working. Of course, we post all of our insights uh, from our daily market updates uh, to our trade alerts, we post those. Those actually get emailed to you and texted to you as well. Uh, tons of research on, you know, we talk about, you know, relative versus absolute returns in the markets. All of those tools are available on the site as well. We have trading, we have screeners, just a, a variety of stuff. And of course, we also um, post our portfolios. So uh, again, you know, you can research your own, you know, if you want to research a stock, um, you know, do the chart, you know, we share the charts with you every week. Um, but we also post, uh, the portfolio models that we run for our clients. And like I said, we just launched on two days ago, actually just launched a dividend model that is 70% dividend yielding equities, 30% um, growth equities. So it's a bit of a growth component to give you some S&P type returns um, with double the yield of the S&P 500. So we're, we're kind of working through this model right now. But, you know, again, so the, these are all there for you. And yes, if you live out of the country, you can certainly use this. Um, when you put in your credit card information, just use any state in, in the United States. So pick Texas and the, it'll work with Stripe, which is our, the credit card processing company. Okay. And, and is sort of the shorthand for folks to understand is like, hey, if uh, if I want to do my own investing, um, mm -hmm. but I want to kind of look over the shoulder of Lance and Mike and the team there at, MI, at RIA, this is the way to do it? Yep, Absolutely. So again, we, we basically, everything we do for our clients, we post on, on this, uh, you know, we post our trades every day as soon as we make them. Uh, so you kind of get, you know, you don't have to do what we do. I mean, it's just what we do for our clients and you can either follow along or not. It's right. Uh, you can, there's all the tools are there to do all your own research. So you can build your own portfolios, track your own portfolios, do whatever. And then in about uh, another month, um, we're going to launch all these all these portfolios plus about six other portfolios that you'll be able to just invest directly into and have them managed for you. Okay. And if folks want to learn more about this, is it simplevisor.com or do they go to RIA.com and then no, find no, it? Sim simplevisor.com. Okay, great. Yep. Um, all right. Uh, okay. So trades. Um, do the trades for the past two weeks if you can, because I forgot to ask you last week. No worries. Uh, so the the big bunch of trading this week was the launch of the um, of the new dividend equity model. So that was a big big chunk of the trading that we did this week. We actually didn't do any. You didn't miss anything from the previous week because we didn't do any trades. Um, we did do a, a few trades uh, this week in particular. Um, the first thing we did is like we uh, um, swapped out. We we added back to Apple. We had trimmed off Apple last year. Um, and then the stock sold off a good bit, turned back up. So we added uh, back into our position in Apple. And we also added a position of MGK, which is the mega growth ETF into the ETF model. Because again, we have S&P based performance in the ETFs that we run in the ETF model, but they're underweight that big mag seven. So we had to add a little bit of exposure to the mag seven to get a little bit more relative market performance. So that we started working on that. Um, we also um, added a little bit this week to um, uh, UNH, which 
got drugged down with Humana earnings. Mm-hmm. United so, Healthcare, uh, just for those United who don't know the ticker. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, on United Healthcare, we we added to we added a little bit to that position because it just got drugged down with the, the Humana earnings and is actually at a very good kind of buy point. So we added a little bit to that in our portfolio. Um, we did we took a little bit of profit out of AMD because again, it's just it's just it's just gone straight up. And we also added to our position in Comcast Communications following their earnings. They had really good earnings report. So we added to our, our existing position there. So that it's been mostly just kind of, we're still underweight equity a little bit. We're running about 53, 54% equity out of 60% because it's a 60-40 model. Um, so we're still underweight equity. We're still a little cash. So we're kind of wanting the market to pull back for us so we can put the rest of that capital to work. But we've just been kind of nipping and tucking around the edges with our with our portfolio. Our portfolio is tracking the market pretty closely, even though we're underweight cash, which is which, which means we kind of got the right holdings, and now we're just kind of rebalancing weightings a little bit. Okay, um, help me just understand the Apple trade a little bit more. Was that more just a momentum trade, or was there more? Were there other reasons to to get back into it? Um, technically, it just it it had a nice correction, got overbought, uh, held support, turned back up. And it's in the mag seven. Look, you know, you may you know, like, look, I'm not a fan of Apple, right? I own an, I own, I'm with the 75% of the population has a real phone called an Android. So <laughs> um, when y'all decide to, that, you know, when y'all get like waterproof technology for the Apple phone, Android had it like three years before you, right? So, you know, shatterproof lenses, we had that like five years ago. So, you know, y'all are slowly, you Apple people are slowly catching up with our Android <laughs> people. But, you know, look, they're having trouble, all kinds of trouble with, they haven't grown revenues in five years, right? So, right. you know, in fundamental play, no, I'm not buying Apple for fundamentals. I'm buying Apple because I need performance in my portfolio. And today I just did this analysis, um, you know, for our presentation, uh, you know, at the, at the conference this weekend, the top 10 stocks now make up 35% of the S&P 500. So for every dollar that goes into 334 different indexed ETFs and mutual funds, 35 cents of that goes into Apple and Eli Lilly, which we own, and Berkshire Hathaway, which we own, and Google, which we own. And do you see, and, and that's why we own those stocks. We're not huge fans of those companies fundamentally, but fundamentals, we're in a market right now where fundamentals don't matter. You can be a fundamental investor all day long and it doesn't matter. In fact, I made a, let me see if I can find this tweet here real quick because I tweeted this out, um, I think on Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. Um, But there was a very interesting graph about value. Oh yeah, here it is. So this is a graph. So this is one year return on equity exposure by manager style uh, going through December and is active uh, manager holdings versus the benchmark. And just what jumps out at you is that value on the far right hand side is the worst performer. Growth, which is your growth stocks, Apple, Microsoft, Google, the largest performer. I said, the market reminds me of my dogs when I take them on the walk. They are well behaved and doing what they're supposed to. In other words, looking at fundamentals. And then a squirrel runs across the path, growth stocks, and all hell breaks loose. And, <laughs> you know, that's that's exactly what's going on in the market. And so, you know, you know, you know, there's this argument that, you know, I'm just a fundamental investor. Great. You can be a fundamental investor and you're vastly underperforming the market because that's the market we have right now. So we have to own these stocks in order to make money for our clients. But we do that with a very short leash. Yeah. And it's it's 
not lost on me here that this is also the only sector, growth is the only sector there where the active managers had a worse track record than uh, just buying the basket and, and letting it ride, right? So it's this just kind of this mindless, you know, juggernaut right now. And you might not like it, you might not think it'll last forever, but you do not want to stand in front of it right now. You know, but it's a very interesting thing. I don't know. I really cannot fathom. I thought about this a lot. You know, what changes it, right? Because as long as people keep piling into ETFs, you proliferate the problem. So the only way to get a bifurcation is all of a sudden people have to start selling their ETFs. You need net capital outflows. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what causes that outside of, you know, the next major credit crisis, crisis. which yeah. which will happen. I mean, look, it's going to happen, right? We'll have a 73, 74 bear market again. We're going to have an 87 crash. We'll have a dot-com crash. We'll have a financial crisis of some sort. I mean, it'll happen, but we know we're in a secular bull market and those tend to last between 17 and 20 years. We're, you know, basically 13 years into this one. So we got a ways to go yet. All right. Um, okay. I got to wrap things up here, given where we are time-wise. Um, I was going to do two rants. Uh, one was going to be around housing. And I'll just note here that um, there has been some life uh, flowing back into the, our frozen housing market uh, recently. Um, pending home sales rose a crazy 8.3% month over month. Um, we're now beginning to see certain areas of the country that are, are we're seeing the return of buying frenzies. I just saw an article this morning about the Hamptons, uh, you know, where, where all the rich people live. Um, that that's uh, that's you know back in in feeding frenzy mode. Uh, home prices there are two x what they were in in 2019. So they've they've fully doubled in four years. Um, but we're gonna have to put that aside. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll reserve that's that a, one hopefully for next week. I don't man, that's such a good one because just real quick as a side note. We were just having this conversation this morning is that, you know, you, you take a look around and one of the big trends going on right now in Texas is to buy parcels of land and you build a 600 square foot tiny home on it and sell it for a quarter million dollars. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on. So you're talking to a guy from California. That sounds ridiculously cheap. I I I, I know yeah. you're I know the outrage you feel at it, but here we're no, like, no, no, I'm just saying you know, to, pay two, to pay two. I mean, you're talking about a quarter acre of land with a 600 square foot house on it, paying a quarter million or three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's something that doesn't exist in Texas. That never existed in Texas, right? Until the last ten years, it's just crazy. And then and it kind of died for a bit, and now it's back. I'm getting all you know, kinds of feeds on this stuff now. Yeah. Um, I, and I just put a tweet out. And again, we'll, we'll have to move because because the, the real rant I want to have in the little bit of time we have left, which is way too little for it, but is what's going on to the border right now. Um, but uh, uh, I, I just tweeted out an article about um, how the the median, the age of the median house in, in America is 40 years old and almost 40 percent of the housing stock is older than I am. And I'm 52. Right. And I think one of the things that kind of often gets lost in the whole housing debate is that essentially houses are depreciating wooden boxes <laughs> um, and our housing stock is, is getting old. And, and one of the one of the problems is, is that increasingly with all the other increases in the cost of, of owning a home, you know, insurance, we, we talked about um, property taxes have been going up, people getting crunched by cost of living. 
um, they're not able to afford the maintenance and the upkeep as much as they did. So, you know, to a certain extent, housing, uh, the depreciation cost is getting larger as time goes on here because people just aren't able to, to invest in the home anymore. Um, you add that to the fact that over the past, say, 20 years or so, you know, uh, as, as houses became much more speculative assets and you had these mass developments going up overnight, uh, that the quality of uh, the materials used for the house has gone down. And you can also make an argument that the quality of the craftsmanship has gone down as well. So, you know, here we are, you know, basically saying, no, 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 everybody, you should still be paying today's current really near all-time high prices for houses at you know, uh, all-time high levels of unaffordability at these high mortgage rates, when a lot of these houses are getting pretty long in the tooth and they're not very well maintained. Um, so again, a rant for a different day, Lance, but um, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I look at today's housing market and just continue to scratch my head. <laughs> yes. All right, so um, let's just squeeze in as much of a rant as we can right here on what's going on with the border. You and I have talked about this once or twice before, um, but things are really reaching a boiling point at this point in time. So Lance, um, I believe the governor in your state, if I got this right, um, has basically put his foot down hard versus the federal government um, and said, look, uh, this is now such a crisis that we need, we states that, that are, uh, you know, have a stake in a secure border. Um, we have to start mobilizing our national guard and uh, bringing him to get this border more secure. And I think it's something like 25 states have now just agreed uh, to begin to mobilize our national guards and, and, and bring them down to the border. And this is, you know, sort of flying in the face right now of, of federal policy. And it's really forcing I think a big showdown that I'm not sure the administration necessarily wants to have in an election year. Um, but anyways, here we are. So what, what what's the vibe right now in Texas? Well, I mean, so first of all, if you don't know what's going on, uh, I, you know, I just I told you I just went on a hunting trip to this actual place. Right. So this uh, hunting lease that I went on uh, actually sits right on the Rio Grande, right next to to. Uh, um, Laredo Springs and and some uh, and some of these other areas that we're talking about, and so this is right where they cross. And you know the the owner of this property runs like, oh yeah, we find illegals here dead all the time because they come across the border, they drown on the way over, they get drug up and just left on our property. Um, you know, so so look, we have twenty five checkpoint legal border crossings across the border for people to cross safely, and they have to go through the the you know you know basically cross, go through the check in with the border patrol, et cetera. But to bypass that, um, they do very dangerous things like swim across the Rio Grande. And so it leads to a lot of deaths. And what Greg Abbott is trying to do is stop that. This one this one park um, that they have all this the razor wire on right now is one of those very dangerous crossings. And the reason that they do this is the cartels they basically push all these illegal immigrants to go across these certain areas. They get them all bulked up and they, they run them across these areas of the border, which detracts all the border guard from where they're supposed to be at their stations down to this area to deal with these crises. Well, when they detract all the border guards down, the cartels run their drugs and, and human smuggling and everything else across these gaps in on the border. So that's when we have this big influx of, of criminal element into, into Texas and now Arizona has now done exactly the same Texas has and basically has declared an invasion into 
their state. Now, this is important to understand because this is this is the battle going on. If you don't understand the battle that's going on, Texas is only trying to secure its border. We're just trying to stem the flow of illegal immigration into Texas because of all the criminal element that's coming across the border into Texas. And, and it's not it's not, well, it's, not just the, it's not just the criminal element. It, it's the fact that it's overwhelming all your support systems, right? Your hospitals and, you know. Well, well, yeah, with that, and you look at New York, you know, Greg Abbott started busing these illegals to New York and Chicago and said, here, take a few thousand of them. We've got a million, take a few thousand. And now New York and Chicago are like, we can't handle this. It's overwhelming us. You know, they had to shut down the school and turn it into a housing shelter. This is what we deal with every day here. But importantly, we have no idea these people coming off. These aren't people just from Mexico and South America coming in. These are people coming in from Yemen, Saudi Arabia, others, you know, terrorist, terrorist countries. They're, mm -hmm. they're filtering through the southern border into the Afghanistan, US. Haiti, China. I mean, they're not all terrorist countries, but I mean, they're 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 not just Mexicans and Latin Americans. They're right. from all and over. Yeah, they're, they're all over. And so what Governor Greg Abbott is, is is trying to fix is like saying, hey, look, we don't we're not trying to stop you from immigrating. That's not what he's doing. He's saying if you want to immigrate, do it legally, go through a checkpoint come in and just go through the legal process of becoming an immigrant. That's that's all we're saying. So we have so we know who you are. We want you to be here. That's fine. But we need to know who you are and where you're going. He just so so he's he boarded up this this park and, you know, put the razor wire on it. And of course, this is where the Biden administration is pushing back. They're going, no, we want our we want our Border Patrol down there to get rid of the razor wire and let these people in. So you see what the problem is. Yeah. So, and sorry, can, can you help me understand? And again, folks, you know, this is a conversation that's difficult to have because there's strong emotions on all sides. Um, and I'm not trying to have this as a good or bad, uh, you know, place a good or bad value judgment on the people that are trying to get into this country. I understand why probably seven plus billion of the world's people would love to live in America if given the chance. And these people are oftentimes leaving, most cases leaving, uh, you know, uh, living situations that are, you know, existentially threatening, terrible. They want to raise their kids in a better place. I totally get all that. Um, I'm just trying to see if we can understand the facts here because yep. it has social, but also economic implications. And that's why it's related to the, the you know, the, the, this, this series, which focuses on financial issues. So facts wise, Lance, as best you understand, what is the rationale for, the pushback uh, where the, the federal border control wants to remove the razor wire that's been put down, you know, to, to, to help keep people from crossing illegally. Um, we've seen the footage recently of uh, what it's like a bulldozer coming and lifting the razor wire so that these people can get through. Like, wh what is the rationale for that, whether we agree with it or not? Because the, so the Biden, according to this is according to Governor Greg Abbott, right? Um, so the Biden administration wants these illegals to come into it. Even uh, President Biden himself said that you know, we need these we need these kind of working age men to come in, you know, to the country. We need this. And again, just to be clear, Greg Abbott, everybody else is and conservatives in general. Nobody is opposed to immigration. Right. We need immigration. We've got to have immigration or to grow our economy. It is the illegal immigration and more importantly, the undocumented illegal immigration that's coming in to where we don't know who's coming in. And look, I live in Houston. And we have just a tremendous amount of immigration coming in the city of Houston. We have a horrible crime rate in Houston. Now, if you look at city statistics, they'll tell you like Chicago, Baltimore, New York, Houston, their crime rates are coming down. That's not true at all. 
It's that we don't prosecute people when they're caught and we release them. And so we don't, we, you know, we let them out, you know, we, we bring them in, we charge them, but we don't prosecute them. So it looks like the crime rate is coming down in Houston. It's getting worse. And, and the crime rate is a real problem. But here's the statement. So the Supreme Court recently ruled says, hey, we're just putting a stay on this thing. We're going to let the lower court deal with this, this issue. So the Biden administration can remove the razor wire for right now if they want. Greg Abbott has said, no, you're not. And here's why. This is his statement. The executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws on the books right now. The, and this is the statement. President Biden has instructed his agencies to ignore federal statutes that mandate the detention of illegal immigrants. The failure of the Biden administration to fulfill the duties imposed by Article 4, Section 4, has triggered Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which that's of the Constitution, which reserves to this state, the state of Texas, the right of self-defense. For those reasons, I have already declared an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 to invoke Texas's constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. That authority is the supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary because it's from the Constitution. Arizona just did the same thing yesterday. All right, super interesting. And look, folks, um, I'm, I'm, the intent here is not to make uh, this a partisan discussion. Um, that being said, uh, it is a state versus government. And right now there's, you know, no, this is no, this is this is hugely fascinating, right? This is what's going on is hugely fascinating from an economic perspective, uh, uh, just a, a historical perspective, because this is this is one of those points where you now have a state standing up against the government. This is this is and this is why there's a lot of talk right now about the Civil War starting here, because this is you know this is the South standing up to the North, right? You know the, the Democratic South. It was all pro-slavery. The, the Republican North, Abraham Lincoln, they were trying to abolish slavery. That was the whole juxta of the of the what led up to the Civil War, right? So um, you know, so as, as we take a look at where we are history, you know, history-wise, this is one of those very interesting moments in time where we're gonna look back. This is gonna make the history books because we'll look back at this and go, this was either the brink of or the start of or could have been the issue of, you know, a, a much broader issue. And as more and more states, and again, if you take a look at the states, Florida, Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, other states, other red states are, are putting their support behind Texas and Governor Greg Abbott. And they're, then you've got 25, 28 states right now all supporting the state of Texas. Yeah, and, and that, that's why I, I talked about those 25 states. Now, I, I again, words matter. I, I, I know it's getting tossed out there. I, I, I don't necessarily see this as being like the potential start of the next civil war. And the reason why is, is I, don't, I don't see the nation as divided, people on the streets about, I'm super pro-illegal immigration and open borders versus, yeah, a country should should have a border policy and, and figure out how to enforce it, right? Um, now, there's definitely loggerheads between federal policy right now and, you know, the states that are having to deal with the, the daily reality of what's going on. Um, and it is clearly, as we've said for a long time now, unsustainable. So I agree. It's getting super interesting. I'm yeah. super interested to see how we end up fixing this. Now, um, now, we'll, now, now, we'll tell you this. I heard a really great interview yesterday between a Border Patrol agent and 
um, a, a commentator, there's a basically a commentator, uh, it was on the radio and he had a border patrol agent and he had um, one of the, the, of the guards uh, from the, the border. And they were like, look, you know, the Biden administration wants us to come in and, and we've got, you know, we've got our orders to come in and, and basically just process illegals. Now, here's the problem with how we process illegals, by the way, is that what should happen is they come in and they say, OK, I want to I want to come into the country. And then they have to go to a hearing. They have to go through this whole hearing thing. And then they get processed into the country on a legal basis. Right. right. And, and meaning we, we know who they are. We kind of know where they're going to go. Yeah. Right. So now what they do, but because of this big flood, what they do is they come in and they say, OK, look, you're here. Here's a piece of paper that ju you just sign it. And we have no idea who these people are. They don't have ID. So you just sign whatever name or they mark it with an X. And, it and it's a promise to appear. And so like in three years, they're supposed to appear in front of a judge <laughs> and never show up again. And so they're in the country and, and you know, we, we give them plane tickets. Um, there is an app for the Border Patrol that they can use to actually use as a form of identification. They can get it on an airplane and fly. You know, we have to go through the TSA pat down. We got to show our IDs. We got to do all this stuff to get on an airplane. They don't have to. They just show this Border Patrol, you know, app that has their name on it, says they're here illegally, and they can get on a plane and fly to wherever they want to go. So that's kind of scary. But, you know, the the you know, what's what this is is going to lead to. And they were talking between the border guard and, and the patrol. They're saying, look, we want to work together. There's you know, there's not this big conflict, you know, between the federal government, like they're all just going to come down in armed forces and, and do this. They're like, look, we know the Border Patrol has to do their job. We're trying to do our job and secure the border. We're going to figure out how to work together. So this will be you know, something that, that, that works itself out. What will be interesting from the political front is how this heats up, you know, in the media. as this well, Absolutely. And, and I don't know if it was in New Hampshire, the New Hampshire primary, but in the Iowa primary, um, it was the number one issue uh, that folks said they were voting on. Um, so it's, it's, I, 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 it's going to be interesting to see if that continues throughout the year or, you know, my prediction is, is, I mean, if it gets worse, it probably will stay there. But but my, my prediction is, is that some of these basic, you know, economic, like I'm just having trouble affording my way of life uh, issues might 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 supplant it. But it's definitely right up there at the top right now. It's something Americans really care about. Well, look, um, I mean, we just, we just saw the employment numbers here recently. The number of foreign born workers that are in the United States is, you know, you're talking earlier about, you know, you know, people trying to get a job. And I've seen, I've, I've talked to right. a lot of people. They've sent out like 1,400 resumes, right? They can't get a job. And, you know, when you get down to the lower wage paying scale, you know, these illegal immigrants, they are getting jobs here, right? They're taking jobs from native born workers. And when you have 3 million plus in the system, that makes a dent. And particularly when you're talking about restaurant worker jobs and wait, you know, waiters, waitresses, you know, you know, those type of things, you know, kind of lower end, uh, kind of that lower end scale of the jobs, you know, we can hire cheap labor doing that. Right. And and so it's it, it has a consequence economically well, that is not necessarily that great for the average American. Yeah. And and so that's kind of where I come to all this. And and, and yes, there's the humanitarian side uh, and, um, you know, that should be paramount. But I'm always with any issue saying, OK, well, what are the economics? And I just think you know, how do we afford the influx of this many more people onto uh, our social support systems in our in our economy, right? And you just talked about one of the issues where, you know, this this may be um, 
you know, maybe biting uh, U.S. born workers, U.S. citizens on the lower end of the pay scale. Um, but also I mentioned, you know, they're, they're, uh, this is happening all over, but there was a stat, I think it was a hospital in Denver or something like that, that they, over some period, I don't know if it was a weekend or a week or a month or whatever, but it was something like they said, our, our uh, emergency room system um, in the state saw 50,000 people, which was a huge spike from what the normal period would, would uh, was. Uh, and they said 20,000 of them were um, illegal immigrants, basically. And they're just saying, like, we're getting overwhelmed um, by the volume of people that are coming in and drawing on these services. And of course, these people don't have any money to pay, right? But but the hospital is not going to turn them away, right? right. So, which, you know, which, which that right there is such a critical point because, you know, the average American complains about healthcare costs. And, you know, this was always one of the fallacies behind the Obama Affordable Care Act is that, oh, there's 20 million people in the U.S. without insurance and they can't get access to health care. That was a bold-faced lie because you go to the hospital, you get taken care of, period, right? But somebody's going to pay for it. And so when you have all these illegals coming in the system getting free health care, somebody's going to have to pay for it, and that's you. So, I right. mean, it's great. That, and look, and again, I'm not against immigration at all. Don't, don't think that for a moment. I am very pro-immigration. We must have immigration in order to grow our economy because we're not having enough kids. Yeah, especially because um, our birth rates are, are dropping so fast. Right. Yeah. So, you know, what we're talking about and very specifically what we're talking about is an overwhelming amount of illegal immigration that's potentially letting very dangerous people into our country. And again, you know, at some point we let a terrorist in, he blows up something in a major city and then everybody's going to be very you know, anti-illegal immigration. Unfortunately, it'll take that type of thing. And then everybody will understand what the danger of illegal immigration is. But that's the risk. That's what that's what Greg Abbott has been telling people. It's like, look, there are people coming in this country that are very dangerous. And we, you know, we need to be aware of that. Right. And and even even short of that, and you know, let's all hope that that doesn't happen, but obviously the risk of it goes up with the more of these people that flood across who so we don't know who they are. Um, but just all you have to do is look at the fentanyl problem that's going on right now, right? I mean, it's just when when you have a border <laughs> where this many people can get through, because of course we only know the people that we that we monitor and see, right? So, what, what, what's the size that are making it through that that we just don't know, right? The, the, stat, um, the, 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 the believed stat at the moment is that we catch about thirty percent of what crosses. Yeah, which is if you look at the numbers that we do are able to report on. And if you double that, more than double that, it's just, it's mind blowing. Um, and then of course, the issue that I always have too, is like, we have a human capital problem in this country, irrespective of illegal immigration, right? Where we've got, what's the stat? It's over a hundred million um, US adults age 18 and over who are considered out of the workforce, um, permanently out of the workforce. The government has ever given up on them getting a job again. Now, now some of them are, are seniors who are too old to work, some are in college, but there's a big and growing chunk of just unemployed, underemployed Americans that are sitting on a couch playing video games, you know, not feeling super optimistic about their lives. We need to be using the existing human capital here better before we bring in floods of other people that we don't know what to do with, right? Well, and then, but you also talk about, you know, when, you know, like I told you when I was down hunting on the border, you know, I was talking to the owners of the property and like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we see them when they come across the border and the border guard, you know, gives them five thousand dollars, you know, gives them a ticket to wherever they need to go or they or wherever they're going to send them. 
but you know, so there, you know, there's money that's being given to these hey, people. So, so say that again. Are, are, are we really like giving the yeah, average yeah. processed guy five grand? Yeah, and th this is according to them. Now, look, I haven't. Uh, I, you know, I was just on the border, and it's like, yeah, we see them all the time. They come over, they hand them a, a basically a debit card with five grand on it. And they give them a ticket, and they put them on, or they put them on a bus and send them somewhere. But yeah, I mean, there's there's money. I mean, this isn't just because they come across the border. They're tapping into our social welfare system. So. You were having, you know, taxpayers, all, all taxpayers are having to pay for this. So you may be pro illegal immigration. And again, that's what you think. If you think everybody should be allowed to come here, that's awesome. Just realize you're paying for it. You're paying for it in higher healthcare costs. You're paying for it not with your tax dollars. And that's all fine and dandy. And if you're good with it, I got no problem with you. That's, that's, a, that's a you thing. All I'm telling you is that, you know, there's a cost to this that, you know, when, if you're struggling to make ends meet, maybe we should be focusing our efforts on taking care of our citizens first and then all this other stuff maybe second. Right. And, and, you know, part of the cost too is the human cost of all the people who have the promise of, Oh, I'm going to get into America. Right. And they're coming from somewhere deep in South America or some other far flung country. And it's a treacherous journey. Right. Yeah. So what we don't see is all the people who die along the way because it's, it's a risky, perilous journey. All right. We got to end it there. I, I wanted to, Put this brightly on our radar, folks. Here, um, just because it, it is happening now, it, it is very germane to what's going on today. Um, but it does impact the economy, and uh, it is highly likely, I think, uh, for better or worse, uh, to become even more of a focal focus point, even more of a flashpoint going forward. So I don't want to be late to the discussion. Um, if indeed we, you know, there are big developments here that we want to talk about in the future. Um, all right. Well, in uh, in wrapping things up here, folks, I just want to give um, some happy news about uh, goings on here at Thoughtful Money. Um, one thoughtfulmoney.com, the website is now live, as I mentioned. So um, uh, for you know all the the, the discussions that Lance and I have had up to this point in time, uh, it is a tricky time for people to navigate what's going on. If you're a regular investor, uh, there's some great services out there like Simplevisor.com. You know, if you want to look over the shoulder. Uh, of a good financial advisor like Lance. Um, but for a lot of people, they don't want to look over the shoulder. They actually want the good financial advisor to manage their money for them, to be their financial quarterback. That's the main reason why I have Lance and the guys from New Harbor on this channel every week is I want you to see what a good financial advisor looks like, one that takes into account all the macro issues that the, um, the interview guests and I discuss on this channel week after week after week. And I want to have you see how they react to changes in the market and how they're allocating their capital. Lance does a great job of, of being fully transparent on that. So if you are uh, just a regular investor and you would like uh, to get a little bit of direction from a professional financial advisor uh, like Lance or the guys at New Harbor, um, we've got a firm up in Canada as well, then go fill out the short form at thoughtfulmoney.com and have a free consultation with these guys. Uh, there's no commitment to work with them. There are no strings attached. It's just a public service that these firms offer to help regular people who are busy with their lives, you know, running their families, trying to figure out their own work lives, uh, and uh, you know, being able to help them by becoming their financial quarterbacks and uh, managing you know the financial parts of their lives so that regular people can go off and do all the things that they need to focus on. Um, and uh, let's see what else. Um, as I mentioned earlier, too, the um, uh, conference that's coming up for Thoughtful Money, uh, as I told you folks in the past, hopefully you've marked your calendars. That's going to be Saturday, March 16th. Um, but um, we've now got a, a, a
place where you can go to sign up uh, to register for the conference. Uh, just go to thoughtfulmoney.com slash conference. Um, you'll get the early bird discount price of $249. That's a pretty substantial savings. I think it's something like 30% um, off of the full ticket price. If you are a premium subscriber to my Substack, um, you'll get an additional $50 off that price. Uh, and I'll be sending an email out to uh, all the premium Substack subscribers. So folks, uh, make sure you go get that discount code if you're going to register. And look, if you want to gain the system, just become a subscriber to my Substack for a month. Cost 15 bucks. You pay 15 bucks to save 50 bucks. Who's, 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 what's not to like in that scenario, right, Lance? Um, yeah, exactly. But I just I just want to let folks know that we've got a really good uh, faculty lineup already scheduled for this. So Lacey Hunt uh, will kick it off with his usual tremendous keynote. We'll have Michael Pento there, Stephanie Pomboy, Ted Oakley, Tom McClelland, Daniel DiMartino Booth, Brent Johnson, uh, Matt Pippenberg. Uh, even your partner, Mike Leibowitz, just signed on this morning, Lance, to talk about bonds. Um, so really is a pretty phenomenal uh, lineup there, folks. Uh, a lot more details on this to come, folks. But if you want to learn more about the uh, the conference and register for it to lock in the low early bird price, again, just go to thoughtfulmoney.com slash conference. Um, and folks, if you enjoy these uh, weekly market recaps with Lance and I, no matter uh, how, uh, you know, how rocky the controversial waters we're willing to wade into, uh, like uh, illegal immigration. Uh, please support your, uh, please show your support for our uh, our courage or our, our craziness um, by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, as usual, I'm going to give you the last word. Hey, um, no, appreciate it very much. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're having a good day already right here in our conference. So, I wish I were here. I'm sure we'll do it again next year. So maybe we'll see you next year. All right, great. And, and you know, next week, Lance, we can hopefully give the highlights for folks here. Uh, maybe we'll kick off uh, this video with the highlights from the conference. All right, Lance, thanks so much again, buddy. Looking forward to seeing you in Houston in just a couple of hours. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.